Welcome back to the Peds Ortho Podcast. This is Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado. And we've got our other co-hosts here on the line today. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital New Orleans. Hey, this is Josh Holt from University of Iowa. And this is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. And today we are super stoked to have Ishan Swaroop from UCSF here with us today. He was a CHOP fellow in 2019 and has built a fantastic practice in San Francisco and the Bay Area. He's the director of trauma and also does a ton of research. And so, Ishan, welcome to the show. We're stoked to have you. Uh, Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah. So we'll start off with just some really easy getting to know you questions. So we always like to ask, if you have a day in the trauma room or you're on call and you've got cases being added on, what's your favorite thing to see on the, on the schedule? It's probably a few. Definitely enjoy a lot of things hip-related. So I would say unstable skiffy would be a, a great one to see or to have on, my, on the board. I think complex forearm and complex elbow is also kind of interesting, you know, the the various Montasia types are kind of always fun to kind of troubleshoot and work through. The tricky type three turns into type four supercondyler. Those are always fun. Um, also, just from a teaching perspective, I think I really enjoy those. So I would say, you know, as I go further in my career, I think the complex things really do. I really do enjoy. Look, I look forward to those cases definitely a lot more. You're a glutton for punishment, sir. <laughs> As many of us are, as many of us are. Yeah, one of those fun type three turns into a type four. <laughs> right. That's definitely a first time answer. <laughs> yeah. All right. So say you have a really tough call weekend or call day or whatever. What's your what's your post-call treat or splurge to yourself if you have one? Ooh, gosh, that's a great question. You know, uh, I'm fortunate to live kind of in a part of the country where we have a ton of great food options and restaurants and my wife is definitely more in tune with the food scene. And so get going out for, for an evening, grabbing dinner, grabbing a nice glass of wine, um, and just enjoying that. Hopefully we have a babysitter. Um, and so just kind of spending some time and catching up on, on life, uh, with my wife, or that would be, that would be ideal. Awesome. Yeah. It's always nice to decompress a little bit after those, those tough calls. Perfect. And then who would you say has been your most influential mentor? Ooh, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, mentor, which is singular. I, I think for all of us, probably there's, there've been so many people that have played such an instrumental role for us to get to where we are and where we're trying to go. I would say the one that definitely comes to mind early in my career has been Woody Sankar at CHOP. Part of my elective practice is hip preservation. And so I talked to Woody a lot. I actually texted him today about what a case I'm doing later this week. And I feel like it's, uh, he's very approachable and gives me honest advice. Um, and uh, kind of gives me his honest opinion on things, which I think is so invaluable from a mentor. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we're, we're all lucky in Peds Ortho, I think, to have a lot of mentors. So I know that was a tricky question, but obviously Dr. Sankar has, has touched many lives and will continue to do so as he continues on. So, all right. So today, the, the kind of big focus of today's uh, episode is going to be distal tibia fractures because there's um, three great papers that came out in the most recent online uh, publication of JPO that I thought were worthwhile kind of connecting and talking about. So 
Ishan, we're going to start with the paper um, that you published uh, that really was driven by you um, and, and the Cortices group. And so it's variations in the management of closed Salter Harris II distal tibia fractures. And so we all know that there's really a, a lack of consensus on treatment on these. And, and depending on who you ask, especially the older folks in peds ortho, you'll get some very heated opinions on how to manage these. So this is an awesome topic. So give us a little bit of a brief overview of how you designed the study, how you implemented it within cortices, and then, and then your biggest takeaways. Yeah, First, just taking a step back, you know, I thought this question was such a basic question, but such an interesting question um, because, you know, I think all of us have seen, depending on where you've trained, pendulum swings. Um, you know, some people treat them operatively, some treat them not operatively. And especially for me coming fresh out of training, I was like, what are my real indications for treating this? And so that's really kind of what drove that question. I thought Cortices was a great group for that because, you know, we represent kind of a, a geographic mix of different medical centers, people in different stages of practice, different backgrounds, different training backgrounds. And so initially, you know, give a lot of credit to Ben Shore to kind of help me, you know, design this study. You know, we thought that it would probably be best as really a survey. And so kind of like a discrete choice experiment, so to speak, like where you just offer some scenarios to people and have them decide between simple choices of operative versus non-operative. Um, oftentimes, we're getting these on call, and the resident or whoever's taking call will text you a picture, and you'll say, oh, yeah, add it or don't add it. So we kind of just wanted to make it like that. And just to standardize it, we made it a common scenario of you know a closed fracture, having had a single attempt at a closed reduction so that there was no variability there. And then just to add a little bit more decision-making ability, we added age and sex as variables, because I think that sometimes does guide some decisions. And basically, we took four scenarios, four, sorry, four x-rays, recycled them into 16 scenarios, and then sent that out to, at that time, there were 37 members, so to all the members. And um, fortunately, many of our, many of my colleagues and many of my colleagues in the group uh, replied, and we had a pretty good turnout, and the results were very interesting. So the biggest takeaways for me from this study were a couple, but, you know, there was a lot of consensus on the non-op cases, but really not a lot on anything else. And the more experienced surgeons tended to be more operative, which was interesting to me. And so I think really, ultimately, this shows that nobody knows the right answer, right? And I will say from having taken this survey... It was one of those where you're taking the survey and you're like, I know this is a test and I know I should be consistent. <laughs> and then every time the picture came up, I was like, oh no, what did I pick last time when I saw this x-ray? <laughs> so, but I think this is, a, you know, circulating those four images into 16 scenarios was a great way to do it because you really, you take away that opportunity for us to bias ourselves in the survey. So I thought this was a re really well-designed thing and some interesting takeaways. So tell us what you think about you know, the experience having an Im impact on people's decision-making and also where you think the operative criteria might land? Yeah, you know, I think a couple of thoughts about that. I feel, you know, the fact that you were picking, you know, you're trying to recall what you were picking for the same scenario. I think that just kind of speaks to the the intra-observer, lack of intra-observer reliability in some of our decision-making in pediatric orthopedics, um, especially relating to this injury. And so I'm, I'm glad that uh, that happened. And so that was by design. Uh, but then in terms of, you know, yeah, the finding of, you know, what we found is surgeons who were kind of six to 10 years into practice had a little bit of a higher likelihood of operating on different scenarios. 
And, you know, I thought I was thinking about this and talked to a couple of other people of what they think as well. And, you know, I think part of it may be related to when you get to that part and I'm slowly approaching that part of my practice is you start to see patients who come back with growth arrests or premature physio closures. And you see some of the sequelae and the complications that can happen with a salt Harris 2 distal tibia. And maybe that influences you into being a bit more pro-surgery and operating early because you want to restore normal anatomy. Part of it's that. Part of it is, you know, your practice is getting busier and, you know, you're kind of doing more cases. So it's hard for me to kind of really pinpoint why that is. But I think a lot of it probably does has to do with the fact that you're a bit more seasoned and you've seen a bit more and you understand that this this is not oftentimes not just an innocent fracture. And so I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I think was interesting that you guys brought up in the discussion, which is honestly a worthwhile read in and of itself, because I think it brings up some of the major issues with this fracture is, you know, that physeal arrest is common, which makes us all sort of extra nervous about this fracture pattern. But then we have a really hard time, I think, deciding when that's a clinically relevant physeal arrest. You know, how often do we actually have to do anything? And if it, if there's an arrest when there's already a small deformity, you know, but there's not a lot of growth remaining, then how bad does that deformity really get? And so that's where I think there's so much uh, variability and we're always biased by our most recent complication rate. So the last bad deformity you have is going to probably push you to be a little more aggressive, but we don't really even know if operating on these actually decreases the physeal arrest rate. So some really interesting things there. What are your, I know, I know, you know, I was going to ask you this question. So what are your personal indications for Salter Harris to closed fractures? Yeah. You know, I would still say it's evolving. Right. And I think one of the studies that really kind of influences the way I think about this now is actually a study that was out of Asia, which looked at premature physio closure. And just like you said, the rates are, are not small, right? Some studies quote them up to 25% or even higher. And so one of them looked at factors associated with that, and it was kind of mechanism of injury as being one of them, which makes a lot of intuitive sense, right? Because the physeal injury obviously happens at the time of the fracture. Um, and of course, reduction attempts and things like that may play a role. So I would say for me, operative indications would be probably patients approaching skeletal maturity. And the reason for that is probably because they have, even if they're, if, even if they're in that 70-ish percent group that doesn't get a premature physeal closure, they probably just don't have as much remodeling potential either. So for them, I would probably try to restore anatomy um, the best I can. And then for the younger age group, it becomes more of a toss-up, right? Because that's where you can say that, okay, maybe I'll accept more deformity because they'll remodel over time. But what if they're in that 25 to 30% group that gets a, a FISUL arrest? So for them, I would probably be a bit more reserved in my approach. Probably more displacement is where I would intervene, uh, both angulation and displacement. So I would say that is kind of my relative indications for managing this uh, this injury. Yeah, that's great. Um, Craig, Carter, Josh, do you guys want to chime in on your your indications and your experience with these injuries? I did want to actually ask uh, if the availability of an OR played into the decision-making <laughs> at all or made it into your scenarios. Because sometimes with these toss-up trauma things, it all has to do with, are you seeing the patient on a day where you can just add them on and it's dealt with and done? Or is it going to be a struggle to get them in? You're going to try conservative for a while and see how it goes sort of situation. Um, because I think the real scenarios surrounding when a patient presents, who they present to 
and your immediate available, available resources sometimes dictate how we treat this and similar fractures. Yeah, we, we did not look at that. And, and similarly, like, you know, similar to the discussion of like, you know, the type 1.5 or 1.8 supercondylar discussion, right? It's like, did it just get booked overnight for you? And you saw it in the morning, you're like, oh, okay. Um, so we're doing this, you know, we right. didn't, we didn't, you know, we didn't, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I definitely see where you're coming from with that. Uh, for, for me, Julia, to answer your question, I, I think I've gotten a little more on the non-operative side now that I've had some in each category get growth arrests. It makes me feel better about being non-op on them. One thing that I really like this paper, it sort of reminds me of when I'm trying to make this decision. I feel like it's one of the more philosophical decisions I make. Um, and you guys quoted some of the papers that uh, the rest of us learned in fellowship in San Diego, this 2003 paper uh, with Dr. Mubarak where uh, they basically advocated for opening these and getting the periosteum out with the punchline sort of being periosteum makes bone. You got to get it out of there or it's going to make bone in the physis. And then a subsequent paper with uh, Andy Pinnock and some other authors out of San Diego that seemed to show that it, it they couldn't find a difference between opening it up and not opening it up. And you know, I wanted to hear y'all's thoughts on sort of what um, what do you think really is causing the growth arrest? I think more modernly... John Schinnaker has become the voice of the physis in uh, modern pediatric orthopedics. I think we've all heard him talk at IPOS and other places. And, um, you know, he explains how the, the blood supply to the physis from the epiphyseal side gets severed in some of these fractures. And that's what leads to the, the death of the cells and the, uh, the growth arrest. So I look at these and I think, well, that blood supply should all be intact. That physis should keep growing. There's not, nothing much I can do for it. Ishan and Julian, everyone, how do you guys think about sort of what's causing the growth arrest and as a result, what you can do about it? I agree. I think when we think about the growth arrest that happens, it's such a conundrum of what exactly is causing it. And that's why I think that paper that I was just referencing, you know, which looked at initial displacement or mechanism of injury is such a key factor in determining growth arrest. And that's why I think as a surgeon, you want to obviously be able to address an issue that's potentially going to happen. But in, in many cases, for at least this particular fracture, that die has already been cast, right? And so it's a little bit of like, it's maybe too little too late. And I think that's where you have to make this a bit more of a philosophical decision, right? Are you willing to accept a little bit of varus? Are you willing to accept this amount of deformity in a 14-year-old kid? And so I think that's where it just becomes such a subjective call. You know, one of the things I've thought about and just kind of toying with is, especially with physeal mapping on MRI becoming a, a kind of a evolving science and being used more often, especially in, in the world of limb deformity. I wonder if it's worthwhile looking at this kind of injury, you know, at the index time point. Um, of course, there's a lot of variables that go along with that, right? When do you do it? Uh, when do you do the MRI? Obviously, the physeal injury is also evolving and goes through phases of evolution. But I think that that probably is going to be the next frontier and something hopefully that within all of our careers, we'll be able to get some more data on. Julia, what about you? Is is there any utility to getting periosteum out of there or anything else you can do to save the physis? Or is it just about preserving the alignment and treating the deformity? Yeah, the more I read about this, and I think the next paper we go into actually kind of helps with this too, is we really don't know why some kids go on to arrest and why others don't. And I'm pretty convinced just even after some cases in my own practice that the periosteum is not the problem. So I've gotten more aggressive with really just looking at overall angulation rather than displacement in these. I mean, if they're wildly displaced, then yeah, I'd 
you know, of course you're going to do something, but if they're three, four millimeters displaced, but there's no angular deformity in either plane, I have a really hard time saying that that needs to be fixed because I can't make the alignment better if it's already good, right? I can make the displacement better, but again, I don't know if that's going to make the physis any happier. And I'm totally on board with you, Ishan, after having seen that, that paper you referenced it, and, and kind of my own experience is that it really, I think, is mechanism. I think, you know, the kids that are flying off whatever skateboards at the skate park, you know, and they went off a 20 foot jump and they landed and they have a Salter Harris two versus the Salter Harris two that just happens when a kid steps off a curb wrong. To me, those are pretty different injuries. And that seems to be, I think, anecdotally more predictive of, of what's going to happen to the growth plate. And I think you're right. I think we'll, we'll know a lot more in probably the next 10, 20 years about how the growth plate's going to respond and why it responds the way it does. Just to reiterate the paper, I think you hit on one of the things that I thought was a nice finding of the paper was that there was more consensus among the surgeons that uh, what matters is angulation, not translation. So that's that's how everyone else seemed to feel too. Yeah. And I'll just say that also, you know, I think that three millimeter rule, I think tons of great research has come from Radies. And I, I think that three millimeter rule is, is just an arbitrary number. And I think they obviously have published on it and refuted their own findings. And so I think that's really admirable. And I kind of feel like it's added a lot to the literature, but I think a lot of us still follow that three millimeter number, unfortunately. And so I think um, we just all need to just recognize that probably three millimeters, there's nothing magical about that number. Totally agree. So I think that's actually a perfect transition to the second paper about distal tibia fractures that we'll talk about. So this is actually a paper out of Turkey, One et al. And they looked at functional outcomes of three different techniques. And the, the paper's titled, A More Conservative Approach in the Surgical Management of Pediatric Physeal Ankle Fractures Should Be Preferred, Mid to Long-Term Functional Outcomes of Three Different Surgical Techniques. So they looked at 39 patients with both Salter-Harris twos and triplanes. So we're looking at two different types of fractures here. But they looked at three different techniques, including closed reduction, percutaneous fixation with screws, open reduction screw fixation or open reduction and plate fixation. And they also looked at fractures that were reduced anatomically, which they defined as less than one millimeter or non-anatomically, which counted as one to three millimeters. And their mean follow-up time was almost 70 months, um, but a pretty big spread. So plus minus 40 months. And then they looked at some patient reported outcomes, including signs of osteoarthritis and function And I'm actually glad this paper got published because to me, the results aren't super logical. And that just goes to show that we don't necessarily understand what's happening. So the closed reduction percutaneous screw fixation patients had higher post-op fracture displacement. So, you know, quote unquote, non-anatomically reduced, but they had the lowest osteoarthritis outcome scores. And the patients that had anatomic reductions had the highest uh, number of uh, osteoarthritis scores. All four cases of the premature physeal closure were in patients that had been open reduced and thus better aligned. And there were no premature physeal closures or deformities in triplanes. So to me, this just logically goes against everything we do in orthopedics, right? We assume that if we're going to reduce it and fix it in an anatomic basis, that we are going to reduce the rate of signs of osteoarthritis. But that is not what they found. And they totally mention in their limitations that this is probably not an appropriately powered study. It's, it's not a lot of patients. But still, I think it's worth talking about in the sense that it, this is completely the opposite outcome that I would have expected reading 
through the methods section. So Ishan, what do you think about this? And what are your thoughts about the open reduction versus closed reduction? What does that have have to do with the premature physio closure? And do we need to get an anatomic reduction or not? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I think it's it's always fascinating to read papers like this and you see how people deal with the same problem in different parts of the world and, you know, just tells you how creative we are in orthopedics with the things that we do, which is really fascinating. So full disclosure, I've never put a posterior plate for a Salter Harris II before, but you know, it's, it's makes, makes sense. It's like a buttress plate, uh, or I guess on the other opposite end of a buttress plate. Yeah. So I think some of this can make a little bit of intuitive sense. So I'm assuming, you know, if you were to kind of extrapolate the open reduction patients or the surgeons that were doing open reduction, are, you know, for lack of a better word, being probably more aggressive, right? In terms of, you know, the number of attempts of reduction, especially at the physis, um, really flipping out that periosteum that we were just talking about a little while ago and making sure that the metaphyseal fragment is totally well reduced onto the epiphyseal fragment. And so maybe we are creating some iatrogenic injury to the physis there, right? So just adding insult to injury. Um, and so maybe that's the reason why all of those four cases of premature physial arrests that we're seeing were in that open group. And it kind of goes to, you know, speaks to maybe less is more, right? Get the alignment better and fix it there. And maybe that's the right approach for, for these. Now, I was still confused by the Tillows and triplane ones because that, I think, obviously, all of us would agree that the articular congruity is probably the most important thing. And so I think that's where having a better powered study would be helpful because I think that is something that I think all of us strive for anatomic reduction. I think the study is is fine. It contributes. I think the title of it should be distal tibia. We don't, we don't have a clue what we're doing or what the right thing is. And just reading the methods operations performed by eight different, eight different surgeons, eight of them had crossing or pin or screws. Six of them had crossing K wires. Six of the incisions were posterior lateral. Four of them were posterior medial. It's like every different possible way that you could do it. They had a pretty even spread about how it was done, how it was fixed, if it was open, where it was opened, if it was fixed with screws or pins. So, you know, we we don't really know, right? And a study like this, certainly, as you mentioned, is just not powered enough to really convince me one way or another. You would argue that likely the ones that were being open and plated probably had bigger displacement, higher energy, you know, more more scary from the start. Um, and so how much that impacts physio closure probably completely compounds everything that any of the the treatment actually does. So yeah, I think the study is just draws on the fact that we don't really know because even if it's done the same way with open reduction, where the incision is and what you fix it with and how it's totally, totally a a grab bag in this one single institution. So I totally agree. I think this is like all the sort of issues of classic retrospective research, which begs the question, Ishan, what's next from cortices? How are you guys going to do this better? I know you must have thought of next steps after your survey study. Yeah, that's a great question. So this was obviously a preliminary, you know, stepping stone to more, more to come. So the next step is to actually do this retrospectively and to kind of also look to see factors associated with premature physio closure and see if we can add to the literature on that, especially if we put together all of our centers um, and all the data that we have. You know, and also look at what the real indications have been for this at centers, right? Of course, surveys have their limitations. So we kind of want to see what injuries are actually being treated at these centers. So right now we're kind of in the phase of, of defining the data dictionary and what data we want to actually collect from all the centers. Thankfully, you know, a lot of my co-study group members have done previous retrospective studies recently. You know, Keith Baldwin did a floating elbow study and 
There's a couple more down the, in the pipeline right now. And so we have a good infrastructure for that. So that's our next step. And then, of course, I, in an ideal world, it would be great to randomize these patients into surgery or no surgery. And I think when there is a lot of clinical equipoise, which there is for this type of injury, it is a pretty good one to, to be able to justify that. It is just hard to do. Um, and that's why maybe a prospective observational study, similar to kind of what the facts group has done, is probably more feasible. Um, and so I think that will probably be the, the next step after the retrospective one. Great. Good luck. It's a big undertaking. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the third paper, which takes a little bit of a different spin on this, but I, I think is an interesting paper to think about. So this is about CT analysis of distal tibia fractures. Um, this is out of Baylor and Texas Children's, Dr. Sheth and Rosenfeld. So they looked at CT analysis of these distal tibial physeal fracture patterns and looked for a classification system that might make sense to help for optimizing screw trajectory. And the, really the, the question they're trying to answer is, you know, most of us get pre-op CTs to help us define what the articular step-off is and, and what the trajectory of the fracture pattern is. But then how do you correlate that pre-op CT with your intraop flora, which is two-dimensional? And so they looked at 69 patients with both tilloe and triplane fractures. So anything at that anterolateral distal tibial epiphysis. And they did a cluster analysis based on measurements of the fracture pattern in relation to the incisura on the axial CT. So they're looking at those cuts that I think that's the first thing we do is, right, we scan through for those axial cuts right above the joint to look for that maximal displacement and where the fracture lines actually exit. And they actually looked at those and and did, like I said, this cluster analysis, and they found that they really fit nicely into three major fracture patterns. So there was sort of this 25 degree off of the incisura one that was a, a smaller portion of the anterolateral distal tibia, then a 60 degree one, and then a 90 degree one that usually had a stellate pattern associated with it. And so then they said, you know, can this guide screw trajectory? So if you think about where this, where your fracture pattern falls, and you think about where it is in relation to the incisura and you base your screw pattern uh, or screw trajectory on the mortise view in relation to the incisura, then that can help guide your screw. And, you know, one of my initial thoughts was this is sort of just an overly complicated way to think about what we already do intraoperatively. But I do think it's valuable to understand that there are these three major fracture patterns and just thinking about, you know, it's going to be one of these three screw trajectories. And honestly, this might be a really help, helpful actually just teaching method for residents that don't see these as often. You know, they, they don't just automatically go to that CT cut and look for the trajectory. So it just may help them understand what are the different patterns and why we try to stay perpendicular to the fracture and how we do that based on CT. So Ishan, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I... I also share the same bias. I get a CT. I get CTs on pretty much all of these, and I do it mostly for surgical planning. You know, so I think a couple of great things about this paper is, yeah, it is really nice to simplify this into three groups. And I think we all acknowledge after seeing this paper, we're like, oh yeah, it, all the ones we have seen kind of fit these, this, you know, these, you know, the three groups that they described. I'll admit, I don't think I'm going to take out my goniometer and make sure that I'm aiming in the, you know, correct angle or, you know, start to navigate these. Like, I don't think it needs to be over-engineered, but it is helpful and kind of reinforces, you know, the AO principles that we we teach our residents and we follow ourselves, of, you know, trying to be perpendicular to the fracture line and, you know, things like that. So I think I'm still going to stick to aim from anterolateral to medial or, you know, so on and so forth. But uh, 
So I, I think that's where I, I feel like it's probably the most helpful. John, how are you doing this surgery? Are you opening anterior laterally and putting the <clears throat> screw in through that open incision? Or are you opening over the fracture, reducing it, and then perking the screws? So I would say, Carter, it's probably, it depends on the fracture. Um, and so oftentimes I'm opening anterior laterally with the hopes of being able to open, reduce, and provide fixation through there. I do think sometimes the fracture line extends more medial. Um, and so sometimes I will actually move my incision to be more over the fracture line. And then I might do a medial to lateral screw, just a percutaneous screw for that. And so it kind of all depends on the fracture pattern and how I think I can best see and fix the fracture. Josh or Craig, what are your thoughts on that? I, I personally open at the fracture side and then perk the screw. I feel like the whole point to me is getting that articular surface reduced and anatomically reduced. So that's really what I care about. And then, you know, great if I can get the screw in through that same incision, but if not, I have no hesitation perking that screw. Yeah, exact same. And it, it you can, even though we call it perking the screw, you can usually kind of peek under and see your screw coming in from that perk incision, make sure you don't have any neurovascular stuff uh, tethering as you advance the screw. So I do the same. Yeah, I think I have attempted to try and close reduce this. Some of these times you see a CT scan like that and you're like, oh, if I could just get tines in the perfect spot and close it down. Every time I've done that, uh, I'm kind of asking myself, am I getting the perfect x-ray trajectory to really know? And um, it's just way easier to open it and look at it because uh, I, I think it's tough to trust that reduction closed. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things is sometimes, you know, I'll use a periarticular clamp for these. And so you've already made a perk incision on a different part of the ankle. And so sometimes I'll just use that incision and just put my screw right behind the tine or right in front of the tine or, you know, wherever I can get it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Sometimes you can just make those, those incisions a tiny bit bigger and sneak your screw in through those as well. Great. Well, let's move on to the stirring the pot section. So, Speaking of Toulouse, so Ishan, tell us what is your millimeter cutoff if you have one for op versus non-op? Yeah, I, I use two millimeters as my cutoff for fixing these or not. And, you know, I kind of take some of that data from San Diego from Salil's study as well. And I do use diastasis still as part of my decision making for these. Great. Right answer, sir. <laughs> um and then one thing that we've talked about actually as a cortices group uh, relates to ankles. Uh, how do you fix your pediatric syndesmotic injuries, screws or tightrope? You know, someone who's trained probably in the last decade, I think tightrope uh, is my bias. But there's no right or wrong answer. But yeah, a tightrope. Awesome. We love it. Um, there is a right and wrong answer in this series, <laughs> On the you podcast. Should, you, should, you should claim yes. that proudly. Yep. <laughs> Whatever Ishan says today is right. That is the answer. Um, all right. Another one that's a little bit interesting, actually, in the literature that we don't have any pediatric literature on, which I would love to address at some point, but post-op protocol for ankle fractures. So when do you start weight bearing and what is your immobilization choice? Gosh, this is, this is, this is where I'm old school. So I, I'm still casting these and I'm waiting four to six weeks before I start weight bearing. There is growing literature, like you said, in the adult world, where, where I think you can start immediate weight bearing, uh, which, again, you know, one of the things I feel like speaking to mentors early on is like, you know, trust no one, right? Especially kids. And so that's one of the things where I'm like, all right, just put a cast on for a little while. 
ankle stiffness will not be that major at four weeks. And so that's what I usually do. Awesome. I agree. I am also still old school. I, I just haven't brought myself to be able to do the immediate weight bearing. Does, does and it then cha- Ishan, does it change for you? If you have a syndesmotic injury, do you go even longer than your four to six? No, even for syndesmotic ones, I'll usually go six usually. Um, and so, yeah, not much longer than that. Moving up the tibia to a tibial shaft. Let's say you have a 12 year old male. He weighs 150 pounds. He's got a displaced tibial shaft fracture. What is your treatment or implant of choice? Yeah. I mean, of course, it depends on the Pisces, but Pisces are probably open. I would, I would assume and a 12 year old. And so I would, I'll do flex nails. I, you know, I still use titanium pretty much all the time instead of stainless. I don't, I don't think the trade-off is that much higher. So I would do titanium flex nails. Sweet. All right. And then, um, what are your thoughts on hardware removal, especially around the ankle? Uh, you know, those epiphyseal screws, are you taking those out routinely or are you leaving them in? Yeah, we just did a study on this looking at a database and we found the rates of hardware removal were obviously, as we all would expect, really high for these epiphyseal screws. And I, I still, you know, I give the family the option. I just tell them that there's cadaveric study data that suggests that there's increased intraarticular pressure with these screws. But having said that, I can't point, pinpoint a study in, you know, in vivo, which shows that increases your risk of post-traumatic arthritis later on. So I give families the option. And I would say majority, though, at least in the Bay Area, will want them taken out. Yeah, it's really interesting to me that my, the groups of my patients that want the hardware out, like no matter what, and the other people that, were, that are like, why would I want another surgery if I don't have yeah. to have it? So it's just, it, it's always very interesting, that conversation, but I do the same thing. You guys have any other questions you want to pimp Dr. Swarup on? I, I will say one thing, you know, I feel like for distal tibia fracture uh, hardware, I, it is obviously more prominent than a lot of other parts of the body. And I think that's probably drives decision-making more than anything else is, you know, they'll be fine for the first year and then you, you know they might come back a year later and be like yeah i'm really annoyed by this screw because it bothers me when i put shoes on or they'll feel irritation when they're doing some different activity that they're doing so ishan i had uh, a question not so much with the initial treatment of fractures but this is something i think our group has a decent amount of equipoise on and i don't think there's a lot of literature so any answer is right but we were speaking of these distal tibia physeal arrests how do you make the decision about when you, first of all, you know, how do you diagnose the arrest at what time point do you think it's going to matter based off that patient's growth going forward? And what do you take into account when you're recommending a distal tibia uh, completion epipsiodesis on that side? And do you include the fibula and do you have to do it on the other side? And uh, just walk me through your algorithm for that. Cause that's something that, I don't think I ever saw it in clinic in training and I have had to deal with quite a bit uh, in practice. Yeah. First of all, I'd love to learn other people's algorithms. because I feel like it's really hard to have an algorithm for this. Um, I think factors that probably influence my decision-making are the extent of the bar. So like, you know, obviously how, how much of the physis is involved, because of course that'll help tell you like what to do, right. In terms of uh, excision of the bar versus completion. Um, the other is, you know, how close are they to skeletal maturity? And so especially thinking about deformity correction and and kind of what you uh, want to accomplish. Um, I think those are probably two big factors in my decision making of, of what I would do for these. I'm fortunate that I have really wise and trusted limb deformity partners who I oftentimes will pick their brains and say, you know, this is a kid six months out, I'm starting to see this happen. 
what do you think? Should I wait it out and see just functionally how they do? And oftentimes that's the right answer is to kind of just let function guide your decision-making. Because again, at the end of the day, x-rays won't always look perfect, but um, I think the function should be the, you know, what we use to, to make decision-making, to make decisions, especially for something where there isn't a, a right or wrong answer all the time. I don't know if that answered your question anyway, but that's probably just kind of how, you know, complicated that decision-making tree is. Yeah, lots of branches on that tree. I would agree yeah. with that. Cool. Well, um, let's move on to the lightning round. Um, Josh or Craig, you want to go first? I could get us going. So I guess we'll start with uh, this one that is called Factors Associated with Presentation of Severe Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis. This is out of Northwestern. Senior author is Jill Larson. And I'll present it as a question to the group. Hopefully you guys have not read it. Um, but out of the factors, the possible factors that I list here that they studied, which one do you think has the highest odds ratio of a patient presenting to scoliosis clinic for the first time with a severe curve? In this study, they defined severe as 40 degrees or more. And the options were race, age, preferred language, insurance status, or child opportunity index, or COI, which is... Um, similar to kind of area deprivation index, essentially zip code based assessment of different resources for a child to have good opportunity. So it's socioeconomic, it's education, it's health availability, a couple different things. So which of those is most predictive of presenting with a severe curve? I'm going to, I'm going to throw my hat in for the last one, the socioeconomic factors, zip code stuff. Child opportunity index for Josh. I'll, I'll second that COI followed by the insurance status probably. Yeah, I made, I made the COI sound pretty good. Julia, yeah. I know that you already know. Um, so it's still race actually. And um, the odds ratio, if you are black compared to white was 2.34, which is higher than all the others. Male versus female also played a role, but we kind of know that is a little bit of a natural history of scoliosis anyway. But child opportunity index did play a part, but it was only a 0.83 and the confidence intervals were pretty close to one with that. So um, certainly availability of healthcare and socioeconomic status is a big part of this. But it's interesting that race, independent from COI, is so much larger. And um, I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts on that. The authors discuss a few different things. One of the things, maybe I didn't catch it in there, but um, I almost feel like it's more cultural because if, if you take socioeconomic status and you've controlled for insurance and all these other things, and it's still just black versus white, then I feel like it's got to be something about either the people referring aren't taking a close look at black individuals or they're biased against referring them, or it's that those individuals aren't seeking care due to possible historic mistrust of the medical system. But it's, it's interesting that it's race and not the socioeconomic factors uh, per se. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting finding. And the fact that this was done in Chicago, right, which is a super diverse place, I think it does it's a perfect place to do this study and to find that that socioeconomic status isn't necessarily as high as we would all think. And, you know, one thing that this reminds me of is that literature that I think all of us remember from med school, even though it's not our specialty is that the maternal uh, death rate in black women is so much higher than white women mm -hmm. in our country. And 
I think that that just shows there is so much more that we can do for those patients, even if they're not in a bad socioeconomic category. It's it's more, as you say, a cultural thing and an inclusivity thing and a providing access thing and building trust and building relationships with those communities that I think is absolutely vital. Yeah, that's almost frustrating um, to hear that and to see that. And I, my, my next question would be at what level is the disconnect? Is it that um, certain families, parents aren't seeing their kids in clothing, in attire, in swimsuits, in things that you might notice curves earlier? So is it, is it more at the family kind of community level or is it, like Craig mentioned, is it at the primary care provider level? Are they not doing as much of a thorough assessment during their annual exams, sport physical, those sort of things? Or is it the third phase, which is then access to like a specialist? And so they're having a, a slower pathway to kind of trickle into an orthopedist. And so that that would be my next question is where is the where is the disconnect happening? Is our family seeing it and then pediatricians just aren't catching it or our family's not seeing it? So it'd, it'd be a good study, I think, to try and see where that um, flow of information is getting lost. Yeah, almost like a like a root cause analysis of, you know, what is part of it. I, I think, you know, the historic mistrust, I think we all acknowledge that, you know, certain groups suffer that suffer from that more than others. And I think that definitely is a, a barrier to access. And, you know, we talk about uh, representation matters, right? In orthopedics, we talk about it all the time. But I think it matters in medicine in general, too, including the primary care subspecialty or primary care specialties and even subspecialties outside of orthopedics. And so I think, you know, putting that all together is really important. And then I do think, again, like I, I feel like I see a fairly diverse group of patients in the Bay Area. And there are a lot that still, you know, this idea of Western, highly specialized medicine is very foreign to them. And, you know, I think it's a little bit of how do we make it more palatable, you know, explain things better, be able to provide more data and education. And so there's so much to that topic. So yeah, very interesting. I mean, just speaking for myself, I certainly can see how a patient in Chicago who may be wearing a baggy sweatshirt for three fourths of the year because of weather and and not wearing the same type of clothing and exposure. And when you go to the pediatrician, you keep that sweatshirt on and things versus someone on a coast who's in and around family on the beach and in swimsuits and just so much, uh, you know, these bigger curves over 40 degrees. I think there's more visibility to them that Chicago is actually a pretty good place that they may be hidden for a little longer. Best place for scoliosis to hide is the Midwest. Is that what you're saying, Josh? Exactly. <laughs> That's why you went there to stamp it out. Atta boy. Well, let me, let me take the next one because it'll transition off that a little bit. Um, so the next lightning round article is out of, uh, out of HSS and Boston Children's and Rochester. So it's a combined study looking at AIS and trying to correlate pain and deformity with other factors, which they use to validate self-reporting pain scores, radiographic measurements, and then uh, topography. So uh, kind of trunk surface topography measurements and tried to see what correlates and if they could find anything with kind of patient reported outcomes of both pain and kind of impact of their deformity and these other things. So what do you guys think they found? Um, what do you think patients' uh, pain and perception of their curve correlated with? I don't think it's going to be surface topography. Good, good. 
always mental health. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would say yeah. I was a little bit surprised by this, that, um, the, the two that it correlated least with were the surface topography and the radiographic measures. And so it's more of the kind of cognitive thing. So looking at promise scores, um, self-image scores, and SRS-22 kind of pain scores is what correlated the most with patients' kind of perception of their curve and, and their pain. So um, I, I thought that there'd be a little bit higher correlation between either their topography, thinking more about kind of clinical deformity and kind of visible deformity and or radiographic deformity. But really, those were the two that showed the least correlation. So it's kind of function and, and self-image domains were really what correlated with pain uh, more than any of the other more objective kind of curve characteristics. I, I agree with you. It seems like the most interesting thing to me is, uh, okay, it's somewhat interesting that self-image correlates with pain. Like there's clearly something going on beyond physical pain, and we really have to respect this sort of biopsychosocial model that we're starting to understand. But if self-image is related, then I would have thought that the severity of the curve, when you really see some hip asymmetry and trunk shift, that that would also play in. So I thought that was very inter interesting that the physical, you know, presumably even these severe curves where you can really see them don't play into the patient's self-image. Yeah. And again, I think that just speaks to self-image is such an internal thing, right? We've all seen kids with small curves and minimal clinical deformity that um, really, really feel that self-image in their head and, and the opposite of that where kids have big curves and big trunk shifts and don't have any self-image problems. So there's something, there's something deeper than the kind of objective measurable deformity that it causes. But yeah, I, I, interesting, interesting findings. Says something for, uh, I think, multidisciplinary management of these patients, right? Like making sure that they have access to mental health resources and, and support structures and identifying that as, as an issue in all aspects of orthopedics, yeah. not just scully. Yeah, it's always hard to know exactly who to refer, but there's good literature developing. We know pre-op pain is related. We know catastrophizing is related. So we're starting to get a clue of who should get those referrals before surgery. You know, one of the silver linings of this is um, as a surgeon, if you have a curve that you can make straight and that they perceive as a self-image thing that they are, you're making them better, um, I think you have a better chance of helping them in more domains than just the self-image um, in terms of pain and function whether that's, as we mentioned, biopsychosocial or reality, it's in the eye of the beholder, I think. I thought you were going to say it doesn't matter if we make them straight because their self-image isn't related to their actual image. <laughs> I like the idea that we can help them in multiple ways. Let's go with that. <laughs> well, let's, uh, or maybe you can show them an x-ray that isn't theirs that happens to be straight and see if, that, uh, <laughs> if they like that. No ethical issues there. <laughs> Carter, do you want to do uh, do yours? Uh, yeah. So let's see. The next one up is a Jay Posner article out of Rady. It is called The Reliability of Measurements for Tibial Torsion, a Comparison of CT, MRI, Biplanar Radiography, and CT 3D Reconstructions. Um, so the, the author has basically used 3D CTs as the gold standard for measuring tibial torsion. And then they compared it to these other modalities. And the first thing they found was that evaluations by surgeons get better if you have training, which is not surprising because these methods are actually, you know, pretty technical if you measure tibial torsion sort of by the book. And the authors described the Goutelier method for CT and the Roskopf method for MRI. 
But, you know, if you know what you're measuring, you can really do a better job than just sort of guessing. So not surprising that training helps. Um, and then the second finding was that all the methods are moderate to good compared to 3D CTs. None of them were really excellent. They all seem to be good enough with some flaws. So I don't think this is going to change what I do too much. But what it really made me sort of reflect on what I wanted to talk to you guys about is do you guys often find rotational discrepancies between your physical exam and the axial imaging when you're looking at tibial torsion or even femoral version? And if so, what do you what do you trust? How do you make your surgical decision? Ishan, why don't we start with you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely try to hang my hat the most I can on my rotational profile. And I try to be very detailed with that. And I try to make my clinical decisions based off of that because intraoperatively, that's what I'm able to assess the best is my, you know, physical exam. Um, having said that for, you know, especially for kind of hip related issues, I'll oftentimes, you know, get a rotational profile to understand how much of their uncovering of their femoral head is related to their, you know, increased femoral antiversion. I'm sometimes pleasantly surprised by how much it is or how much it isn't. And so I think that just speaks to kind of the dynamic aspect of assessing rotation, right? The soft tissue tensions, muscles, that's probably the reason why, you know, when you get a gait analysis, it doesn't always correspond with a CT version or an MR version study. But I think clinically, I still try to hang my hat on the rotational profile on physical exam. And that's how I still try to understand why is it coming from the femur, is it coming from the tibia, is it coming from the foot, just based it off the exam. Okay. And then follow-up question. So you're, uh, you're operating for femoral antiversion. How do you make your decision for where do you want to put them? Do you try to normalize their femoral version or are you using some other part of the exam to, to decide? So... I would either, so it depends on the, the etiology, right? So if it's like more for, more from like a post-traumatic kind of rotational deformity, then probably you have a, you can follow what you have on the other side for their. Yeah. Let, let's say it's uh, no, no trauma. This is just the way they're born. Both sides are the same way. And they seem to have symptomatic uh, hip instability from their antiversion. Yeah. Then I would, I would probably try to just normalize it to like the normal range. And hopefully my exam corresponds with this, with the actual numbers uh, from the C2 version study, but yeah, normalize them. Right. You know, maybe I'm just not a good enough surgeon, but I have just found that trying to really dial stuff in intra-op, I, I just don't feel like I gain a whole lot. So I, I certainly check and I try to make decisions kind of based on my pre-op exam. And I do get a CT rotational profile and kind of use all the data that I can. But intra-op, I just feel like there's, I try to not make big dramatic changes unless something is dramatically different intra-op, which has just not been the case. So so I, I try to kind of have a, a ballpark and pretty dialed into what I'm trying to do before I start. And the question that I want to know about rotational stuff is, you know, we've learned from hip arthroplasty that it's not the version that you put the cup in. It's not the version that you put the stem in. It's the combined version, right? It's it's all combined. And so, like you said, when we're trying to dial in aniversion and we're talking about just the femur, I think we're missing it, right? Because the, the pelvis matters too. And so how much uncovering and how much instability just if we're just thinking about the femur we got to really think about the, the pelvis and same thing at the ankle same thing at the knee i think if we try to really just look at one segment we're, we're going to miss the boat on a lot of these because it's it's the joint it's both sides all right so how are you how are you making that decision how are you adding them together when you're derotating a femur yeah so same i i trust my clinical exam so i try and see what they're what their kind of static motion is on the exam table. And when I have them come back for their workup, I really try and 
dial that in a lot more accurately than when I see them kind of for their first indication. And then I do use a CT rotational profile through the hip, knee, and ankle to, to try to make sure that at least corroborates with my clinical exam. And then, like I said, I kind of decide before I'm going in how much I plan to derotate them. I and I use um, pins and triangles to really try and assess and dial it in as much as I can. Then once I get to that point, I fix it there enough to be able to move them intra-op. And that's where then I'm, if I'm worried about their version of their pelvis or acetabulum beforehand, I don't want to change them so much that I'm now causing more impingement or making them lose too much motion one way or another. And so that's where I'm starting to kind of take into account the other side of the joint. But when I get the rotational profile, if I see something dramatically off in the pelvis, um, I talk to the families about it and talk about, you know, this this potentially could be we end up doing something on both sides of the joint. I've never done them both at the same time. But um, that's a conversation that I have with them more now that I'm trying to think of both sides, particularly in the hip. Yeah, I like the way you put that. The, the sort of technique I've picked up from some mentors, which isn't perfect, but I think works pretty well, is trying to basically give most of these patients 30 degrees of internal rotation at 90 degrees of flexion at the end of the surgery. With the philosophy being that that takes into account, like you said, the femur and the acetabulum, you're unlikely to impinge ever if you can internally rotate that much. And at that point, I feel like I haven't overcorrected them, but it's, it's, it's hard to know. Certainly when you look at all the studies that like mathematically try to balance the femur and the acetabulum, they go way over my head. So that, that's sort of the, the most complex thinking I've been able to come up with. One technical tip is, um, you know, Dave Schur at HSS taught me this when I was a resident. He uses this inclinometer uh, intraoperatively, which is literally what, you know, we use people using construction. And that kind of takes the guessing game out of the whole triangle thing. Because I feel like that's, you know, you can just have an inclinometer either in a sterile bag or your iPhone has an inclinometer that can be in a sterile bag. And you can just put two pins in and just tell how much you've derotated. It's a bit more precise. That's awesome. Sweet. Craig, you want to take us home? I do. This is a recent JPO article out of BC Children's. Uh, the effect of selective dorsal rhizotomy on hip displacement in children with cerebral palsy. So let's hear from the panel. Um, how do you think uh, an SDR will influence hip displacement in children with CP? And I'm not going to tell you about the study. You don't have to be specific about this, but just does it positively influence hip displacement, i.e. does it suppress it somewhat? Um, negative influence or no effect relative to population norms? Purely, purely anecdotal, but I have had a couple patients who I, I swear within a year of SDRs have had significant progression of their dysplasia. So purely, <laughs> purely anecdotal. I, I would not say that I have any clue, but. I, I, I mean, I would say no effect because I think I, I, I definitely believe the whole like, you know, persistence of fetal alignment, you know, and I think it doesn't change the anatomy in any way. It changes the more of the, the dynamic factors. And so if you still have a dysplastic acetabulum or in coxivalga, that seems like it's still going to happen. I'm going to go with, I would intuitively think it would help by decreasing muscle tone, but I also think that we would have heard about it a lot if it helped. So I'm going to go with no effect. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah, I think that inherently people think that tone is uh, probably what drives children with CP to have gradual migration. And so helping with the tone via SDR should help. But um, like uh, most studies, they did not show a significant effect of SDR. And uh, they note there's some limitations. The real, the real positive thing about this study is they had a minimum of five years follow-up post-SDR. 
but the major limitation here is that um, it's not really clear how they selected patients get SDR. So are these their worst tone patients, in which case they're kind of setting themselves up to not show a benefit or, uh, and also there isn't a comparison group. It would be great to see a matched group that didn't get SDR, but instead what they had to do is just compare to population norms, you know, GMFCS one through five and what the percentage was that developed migration in their cohort versus the norms. So their conclusions were, um, that their migration percentages were still consistent with the literature five years post SDR. And so probably no benefit, um, maybe other benefits, but I don't think you can claim that one. Great point about the potential selection bias. A rare, uh, a rare moment for me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We'll edit it out. (laughs) So I'm assuming, uh, none of you guys are uh, referring your patients for this procedure. (laughs) Um, go ahead, Ishan. No, I was going to say, I I have seen, at least at our institution, there is the neurosurgery group is very active with SDRs. I think it's a historic thing. And there are still a lot of patients from our specificity clinic who end up going that, that route. And anecdotally, again, you know, a lot of families are really happy with the outcome, especially with like positioning and being able to take care of their child whether that's making any, you know, anatomic difference for, for, for us or from an orthopedic point of view, not, maybe not so much, but again, I don't know that literature super well, but anecdotally, I do think families are pretty satisfied with the outcome. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think, I think the reason you probably do know the literature, Ishan, you just, we all know that it's not very conclusive. Um, There's so much variability in how it's done. Right. So I think the old knock on it was that you're not very selective. You make the patients quite weak. And um, maybe you unmask dystonia if you're not choosing the right patients. Um, so I think neurosurgery, it's as far as I can tell, it's admit how it's been told to me is that it's still kind of the wild west in terms of figuring out who to operate on, exactly how to do the procedure. And everyone kind of does it differently, so it's really hard to generalize the results. Um, but I I would say that for our multidisciplinary spasticity clinic, I think that it's a group decision. The patients who seem to get it. I think as part of their spasticity management um, and the patients they're selecting, it seems to do them some good. And um, uh, I think it's, I think it's a good option to have if your center has some experience with it. So jury's probably still out on that, but I've been a fan as well. Perfect. That's all we've got for the lightning round today. So thank you so much, Ishan, for joining us. That was an awesome episode. Appreciate all your wisdom and, and thought processes and look forward to uh, what's going to come next through the pipeline. Well, thank you for inviting me. And uh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Great talking to you. Ishan, good seeing you. Take care. You too. Yeah. Take care, guys. Thank really you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Have a great evening, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks.